Welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. This is episode 56. Unfortunately, the Russian version of this one is much better than the American version. The Russian version is longer, wider, and taller. It's cheaper. It's more sparkly, but without getting glitter everywhere. It's cleaner and prettier. And it's more heavily censored. So if you don't like certain parts of my podcast, then you have a reasonable chance of those parts being taken out. Or at least you would. But sadly for you, this is the American version, except in Nebraska, where state law requires me to broadcast the Swedish version, which inexplicably I am obliged to record while wearing the Svenska Nationella Kladidrakten and listening to ABBA. And people ask why I wanted Britain to leave the European Union. This week's podcast, all of them, irrespective of your location, is brought to you by two sponsors. Uh, first is Full Time, Work and the Meaning of Life, a new book by David Barnson. It is deep into the ethos of National Review that work is a bedrock in a flourishing society and that work is a pivotal component in the God-given dignity of every person. Economist and financial manager David Barnson, our friend and colleague, has taken this message to its full potential with his brand new book, Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life. Whether it be in public policy, in the culture, or even in the church, too often work is seen as a necessary evil, and not the universal blessing that it is. But David argues in this brand new book for the economic, theological, and ontological significance of work, suggesting that it is core to our identity and that the fastest way to a failed state will be to continue in this low regard for work that ignores our God-given capacity for productivity. David does not shy away from defending work as a therapeutic, cathartic vehicle for dealing with challenging circumstances in life, and he ultimately argues that the other things we value in a well-ordered life, such as marriage, children, community, worship, etc., are all enhanced when we properly prioritize and centralize work. It is not a book on work that you have ever read. So you can get David Barnson's full-time work and the meaning of life today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever fine books are sold. That's full-time work and the meaning of life. You can check out more at fulltimebook.com. Or as they say in Sweden, fulltimebook.com. If I have any Swedish listeners, sorry for that. Please do not leave a review. My guest today is Father Nathaniel Myers, who contacted me by email months ago and asked if I'd like to talk about well, God. And after a small delay period during which I caught up on my email, I said that I would. So here we are. I should stress this is not a debate. It's a conversation. I always like that Monty Python sketch in which John Cleese announces that instead of debating the existence of God, the two participants have agreed to wrestle for it. But I'm not into wrestling. I am into discussing. And to that end... 
I will let Father Myers introduce himself and then kick us off, as he was the one who contacted me, so he'll have a better understanding of what he wanted to talk about than I will. Well, thank you, Charlie. It's an honor to be on your show, and uh, I appreciated getting your message that you wanted to have this conversation. As uh, just a simple little parish priest in Buffalo, Minnesota, uh, yeah, I was not expecting that I'd be doing a podcast with a National Review editor and writer, so it's a true honor and privilege to be able to be able to take this opportunity to speak with you. And the reason why I asked or proposed this idea was because I've heard you mention at different points in time the fact that you're an atheist, and I've been reading your articles for quite some time and listening to different podcasts in which you participate, and never has there really been a time where it's become the focal point about what's the thought of the atheism itself versus theism, and how is this worldview created? I know you've touched on it in some particular implications from it, but just the actual question of does God exist uh, has not been a focal point. And I thought this is a pretty worthwhile question and one that uh, hopefully with us being able to talk to one another could produce some good fruit for both of us. Absolutely. All right. Well, let me explain my atheism, perhaps. Is that a good way to start? Sure. So when I say atheist, I more mean apatheist in that I'm not angry about it. I'm not evangelical about it, if that's the right word. I just don't have it. I am without God. I'm not hostile toward religion. I'm not dismissive of it. I'm married to a Catholic. My children are being raised Catholic. But I never was religious, and I've never believed it. I suppose agnostic is a good word, too, in that although I think there is probably not a God, and I don't believe the fundamental holdings of the Bible, by which I mean the metaphysical holdings, I... I'm not sure about that. I'm certainly not running around the world convinced that I have the answer. But I haven't been persuaded to become a Christian or a member of any other religion. So that's what I mean when I say I'm an atheist. And I think that's actually oftentimes what a lot of people might mean when they say they're an atheist. There's obviously the new atheists that became a little bit of a cause celeb about 20 years ago that have that more evangelical atheism, the hostility towards religion or towards the idea of God. But I think those people are fairly rare in the general population, right? Most people, I think, actually do live their life as an atheist. Even a great many of professed Christians, or you know, I can think of my own parish here with a lot of parishioners, they might make a lot of their choices in life without reference to God. And so atheism, I think, does play a big role in how a great many people live, because we do often make, whether it's a personal choice, whether it's a professional choice, just even a consumer choice, decisions that we don't necessarily consider the metaphysical claims that you referenced in the Bible. But I think that's actually the right place to put this conversation because it really strikes me as not so much a theological question or a sociological question, but truly just a philosophical question, does God exist? And that properly does belong in the subject of metaphysics. And I think when we can put the question there, we can realize there's three possible answers. One is, yes, God exists. No, God does not exist. 
And then finally, you could give an answer of, I do not know. I think the stakes of the question are big enough and important enough that the lack of knowledge should probably not feel satisfactory to a person. Uh, If the claims of the existence of God are true, then it seems that that would be really relevant to what we do in our life. And if the claims are false, it'd be good to know that, right? And to be able to kind of, with some level of confidence, assert that they are false. So I can see that I think most people do have that apathetic approach to this question because life's busy and maybe they weren't raised with faith or maybe they never really bothered to consider the bigger questions of life. But I don't know that that's necessarily the way we'd want to approach this. I think we would want to try to come to an answer as firmly as we can. I think that's right. I should also say, though, that there's a line of belief, and it starts at there is a God, and it ends at the specific claims that a religion makes in connection to that God. Because there are some people who believe that there is a God, but they're not Christians or Muslims or what you will. They're deists or even they believe it in an abstract philosophical sense. And my atheism gets much weaker the closer we get to the beginning of that line. By which I mean, if you said to me right now, there is a God, the universe was created by a prime mover, I would say, well, I have no great explanation for the universe's existence. I'm open to this. But when we get to the end of the line, we start making other claims, such as that that God cares about me or wants me to behave in a certain way, or in the case of the Christian faith, sent his only son down, and that son performed miracles that are not analogies, but are to be taken seriously. And that's where I become much more skeptical. So it's important, I think, to locate where we are on the, on the line in that the potential existence of a god is much less unlikely in my worldview than the specific claims that flow from it. Does that make sense? Definitely. And I think that it's also good to recognize that this is where I think a lot of Christians or Jews or Muslims or Hindus might make the mistake when they approach this question as if it's a theological one, right? A lot of those questions you're asking at the end there are or those claims, those those hesitations would be really in the realm of theology. And I think one of the things I like about, you know, being Catholic is that usually the church is pretty good intellectually about parsing out what's properly a matter of philosophy and what's a matter of theology. When it comes to, you know, revelation, when it comes to the specific claims about the divinity of Christ, or if it's going to come down to uh, matters of morality, these are really often theological questions. Before we can get to those, we have to really just wrestle with the philosophical question. Earlier, you made reference to not having it, right? You know, that you weren't raised in a particular faith. And one of the things I think we can say about the question of God's existence is it's not actually really truly a matter of faith. It's really a matter of knowledge. This is actually maybe a little counterintuitive because I think most people see the question of God as merely being about faith. 
But I think it's actually about deductive reasoning of the experiential order that we have, right? So you made a reference to the prime mover, you know, very Aristotelian. Obviously, Aristotle was a pagan, lived before Christ, would never have had any encounter with Judaism that we can have any assurance of anyway. So he, nonetheless, through a very logical reasoning of the world, came up with the idea of the prime mover. Now, there's not a lot you can say about a prime mover other than that it kind of kicks everything off. That's where the theological reflection might start to kick in after you want to figure that out. But I think you have to first just look at that metaphysical claim, does God exist, yes or no? And I don't know that the answer is really obvious one way or the other, actually. I think you can look at the world around you, and you could draw reasonably a conclusion either way. The reason why I draw the conclusion that God does exist really ultimately comes from the fact that, and this is maybe stealing a little bit, maybe even um, in the most juvenile way, uh, stealing uh, from Kurt Gödel's incompleteness theorems. But if you look at mathematics, right, for any system in math to actually work, it can't explain its own existence. It has to have something outside of itself that allows even something as basic as arithmetic to work. And that strikes me as true of the physical world, the material world. There has to be something outside of it, something immaterial that does allow this operational field in which we exist to exist. And I think that's, to me, the intellectual, not even a faith-based, but just purely a rational decision of empirical knowledge or uh, rational speculation that allows me to say that God exists. There's a problem with that, though, as far as I understand, which is that it becomes recursive in that if we need to explain existence by pointing to something else, then the question is raised, what created that something else? Why doesn't it just keep going back and back and back forever? Again, I don't have particularly strong views on which one is correct, but isn't that a logical problem with the idea that to explain why there is something rather than nothing, we need to point to something? Yeah, that's what uh, a lot of philosophers will call the infinite regress, right? You know, just keep going back and back and back. There's two points I would say to that. One is that an infinite regress can either be what they call vicious or can be non-vicious. If it's a vicious infinite regress, that's a problem in that it means that the regression actually can't hold, right? And then you could say that there's some form of infinite regress that perhaps isn't vicious, that doesn't actually defeat its claims. Not necessarily have to get too deep into the woods on, on that particular debate within metaphysics. I think the thing that changes here is that when we look at God, the claim of who God is, right? And I'll just, for the purposes of our conversation, obviously adopt a understanding of God that's Catholic. The understanding of God is that there is nothing to explain. There, it's it's absolute. It's an infinite, right? And there isn't a beginning or end within that. Some of the uh, when I'm talking to our um, kids in the school, one of the examples I'll try to use to illustrate this point because they ask the same question: well, Who made God, or where did God come from? As I'll just simply point to the idea of the geometric shape of a circle, right? There's no beginning or end to a circle. It's the same idea with God that there isn't an infinite regress because God simply is. Now, that's obviously now becoming more of a question of theology than it is the question of philosophy. But I do think that that could be a, an effective response to your, your objection or your 
point of consideration. Yeah, and then, of course, we don't know. I mean, I can remember being probably seven or eight years old and on vacation in a place in England called Dorset with a friend of mine, Max, and his parents. His father was a professor at Cambridge who specialized in moss. And Max and I started asking him questions about the universe. How big is it? And so forth. And he said, it goes on forever. It just never stops. <laughs> and that physically hurt my head at the time. <laughs> just... <laughs> is beyond my understanding. It still hurts my head. When I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't sleep and I start thinking about this, the very concept of it just going on and on forever is outside of my comprehension because everything around me stops. Life stops. The day stops. There's a wall in front of me. The town ends. I can see the sky and out into space. And this man was a scientist, but he couldn't explain it either. And so I am open to that idea that it just is, because that was essentially his conclusion as well. And he wasn't religious. He said it just is. Mm -hmm. It just does go on forever. I don't know why, but it just does go on forever. So I, I'm not unsatisfied by that answer. I'm also not convinced by it because it could also be wrong. And I think after a certain point, this is a choice. And I do think that the rest of the claims help people into accepting or not accepting the first one, right? I think there's truth to that, yeah. I think most people, when they're trying to make epistemological decisions, right, are going to be empiricists. And so evidence will be a huge part of how they understand what is or is not the case. And so I, I can see that very much being where people will be firmed up in that general basic question because they have a you know experience of a miracle or they might have a real sense of having seen God's providence at work or they will have the sense that God's providence was not at work and therefore maybe there is no God, right? So I do think you're right. A lot of our answering to this question is going to be predicated on our experiences I'm still not convinced that that's always the right way to do it because, of course, our experiences can also be false. And I mean by that, that we can misunderstand our experiences. We could have false memories of our experiences. These are pretty well-documented phenomena. And so I don't know that we should put too much emphasis on these particular claims of ourselves when we're trying to answer this question. I think as best as we're able to separate it out and deal with it just in the abstract, then build up from there the practical out of that. That's, I think, you know, probably an overall more intellectually rigorous and sound way of approaching the question. But if I'm able to ask you a question, sure. What would be so if 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 you're adopting the existence, the lack of existence of God, would it be fair to say that this would mean that you think the only thing that exists is material reality? Well, I think yes. If I were concluding that there is no God, which is the thing I'm the least sure about. The ultimate answer, though, is that that question at the beginning of the line doesn't matter an enormous amount to me, because whether I accept that there is or isn't a God, until we get to the other claims that are made, doesn't particularly matter. Whether the universe 
really did explode from nothingness with no cause, or it was created by a god who logically resembles the circle you mentioned, doesn't matter. What would matter to me enormously is whether the claims that are made in various religions, and the one that's closest to me, Christianity, are true. Now, if those are true, that makes an enormous difference because they are materially important to me. I mean, leave aside the exact details of it. If there is such a thing as eternal life, if there is such a thing as miracles, if Jesus Christ was not just a great man, but was actually the son of God, if the church I go to with my wife and children is not a moral teacher alone, but is metaphysically correct in its core claims, that is hugely important. But the start of the line doesn't seem to be to me. And I'm open to you suggesting why I'm wrong. But if there's nothing that flows from that, if you stop there and you don't need to work out whether intercessionary prayer works or whether Jesus of Nazareth was the son of God or whether, and we can get into theodicy, which I know is a really difficult topic, but whether God actually cares about us or intervenes in some way, then I just don't see a great need to spend too much time thinking about it. I really do think you have to get into the specifics before it would really matter. And I should say, I do think those questions matter a great deal. And I often say to people who complain about missionaries or those who would attempt to convert them, well, of course they're doing that, given what they believe. Because if I believed it, I would be doing it too. In fact, it would be irrational not to. I think that's right. I mean, it, the the impetus of the missionary, right, it, it only is logical that they would actually follow through on it. I think it works the other way too, though, right? If someone is convinced God does not exist, I do think there's a value that they would have to say, don't live a, a life of delusion, right? I mean, if they're convinced that these are yeah. false claims, there is a reason why you'd want to advocate on that side as well. So I think that that first question actually does matter because that will determine whether I should or should not listen to a specific church, what amount of credibility I should give to it. Obviously, there's no need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, just because maybe a metaphysical claim is dismissed here doesn't mean that you can say everything the person says or does is to be discarded. I don't think anybody would want to probably make that claim if they're being careful and thinking this through. But a lot of those moral teachings, right, that are coming from when you go to church with your family, right, are based on that metaphysical claim. And so I don't know that you can separate it out and say, well, that one doesn't really matter. This is actually one of the things I usually find most irritating to me is when the question about the existence of God comes up, so many theists, whether they be Christian or any number of other faiths, tend to emphasize the sociological benefits of religion or of community or whatever it might be that they want to focus on. And I think that's missing the point. The point isn't whether or not there's good benefits. You can find good things in religion. You can find bad things in religion. The question is, is the fundamental claim true? I think that's the debate. And so I do think we have to yeah. get closer and closer to that line. And then if we can get ourselves an answer out of that, we move further down. I mean, then, yes, the question of, about God's existence 
does not entail necessarily that it's a Trinitarian God or that it's a personal God. I mean, that could just get you to being a deist, but nonetheless, you start having to parse through those questions, right? So if, if God exists, God creates a world, why does God create a world? That would, I think, start to form where we're going to get clearer pictures of some of those maybe more practical things in the day-to-day life. But that first question I still think is ultimately the most important one. Yeah, I, I suppose that's right. I suppose I see it happening to me if it happens the other way around, though. And that's perhaps why I'm interacting with my line in the way that I am. So you mentioned the sociological benefits. I believe that Christianity is a good thing. You talk about the cultural elements of the faith. Well, I am a cultural Christian, but I don't call myself a Christian because, exactly as you say, that isn't the important part or the most important part of being a Christian. The reason that I see the line in the way that I do is that if you started to believe any of the key claims of Christianity, then along with that would come the belief in God. I accept that if you start with the question of whether God exists or not, you can then move into the specifics. But almost everyone I know who was not religious, by which I mostly mean Christian, and has become religious, again, mostly Christian, has not started with the question of whether or not there's a God and then become more and more interested in the details, but has had some sort of experience that has led them to believe that, say, Catholicism or Protestantism is true. They've had a conversion moment. They've perhaps been through something and felt God. And they will describe this in very palpable terms. And I'll confess, I occasionally feel envious of this because I don't have that. But once they've done that, maybe it was in a church or in a religious setting or in connection with someone who was already a member of the faith, then the first question that we discussed is resolved for them. Because if they are feeling God's love, then God has to exist. And you don't need to ask questions about infinite regression or prime movers. So I suppose I see it the other way around, which is less, well, should we start at the beginning and really care about that and then move forwards, and more if the stuff at the end of the line starts to happen or becomes apparent to us, then we're obviously going to believe all of the stuff that comes before it. I think you're right. I mean, the way we're approaching it is coming from the opposite directions, right? So maybe eventually at some point we meet somewhere right. in the middle. Um, but I, I guess, Mike, so if I'm understanding correctly, you know, I'm proposing this as fundamentally a metaphysical question, which, you know, you focus it in on that, which is really going to be independent of necessarily our experiences. Whereas if you frame it, and if I'm understanding correctly, I think this might be how you're seeing it. It's not so much a metaphysical question, but an epistemological one, right? So it's a question of knowledge more so than what it is. And then once you feel like you have a a sense of knowledge about the existence of God, yes or no, that would entail with it certain metaphysical claims. Is that a fair assessment? I think it is because the only question that an individual can resolve absolutely is epistemological in that 
no one, at least not yet, can prove either way that there is a God or not by interrogating that metaphysical question. But if someone truly believes, and I don't say that pejoratively, I am open to being wrong, but if someone truly believes that they have a personal relationship with God, then that God exists. At least it does as far as they're concerned. And then the metaphysical question is answered. In the same way as if you put your hand on a stove and it burns you, you don't really interrogate the nature of heat. You are satisfied that there is a connection between you having put your hand on the stove and what happened to your skin. So I, I think that to me is the, in a sense, the most persuasive way of resolving the question because otherwise you get into mathematics and philosophy and physics and I've never yet read a book and I have read a bunch of them by an atheist that convinced me there wasn't a god and I've never read a book by someone who never moved past that initial question and wished to persuade me that there was a god that convinced me either, because I throw my hands up when I read them and say, I don't know. But again, if I had a relationship with God, then I would have answered that question. It's, you know, it's funny, because I think what we're stumbling into here is recognizing that we're maybe having actually more of a divergence in the question of epistemology, even than in the, the metaphysical question of the existence of God. And what I mean by that is, I would consider myself to be more of a rationalist in that I think we are born with innate ideas that we know just instinctively within us. And these obviously are nurtured and matured over time. They can be warped. They can have all sorts of things happen to them. But I think that's the base of knowledge. And experience less so. And obviously, most people that I've interacted with, and even, for, I should say, most Catholics, would take an empirical, like the empiricism uh, approach, right? And that would be obviously Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, most famously, of course, in a very radical form, David Hume. But I'm not convinced that's a great way to try to build our knowledge or to answer our questions because we are fallible. And so our own experiences, I think, are weak Yes, as far as an actual true you know, thing to build our life on. I mean, the schizophrenic is convinced that people are following them. And it's true for them, but it's not true in reality. What I'm always interested in, as much as I'm able to try to get to it, is the more objective outside of myself. The question about God's existence isn't dependent on what I know or feel myself. It's an independent question of my own existence. I agree that that's not going to be you know, a bestseller. I mean, there's a reason why uh, Joel Osteen's church has so many people in it, because he's speaking to their feelings, right? But I do think that if we want to be serious and rigorous on the question, that Approaching it in the more incremental, slow build case is probably the more sustainable one long term overall. But it probably won't have the appeal to the uh, conversion market, shall we say? Well, no, but I, I suppose at this point is when I become the super skeptic. When I was five, my school taught us the feeding of the 5,000. And I assumed that it was an analogy. And at the end of school, I said to the teacher, so 
This is a story about people being selfish and hiding their food until they're shamed out of it, and then they bring it out, right? And she said, no, <laughs> no, no, it's not. No, Jesus, via a miracle, created that food. And I thought, as I think now, no, he didn't, because people can't do that. And I don't know what logical inquiry into that miracle could prove it to be true. I don't know how you would go about... This is why I keep coming back to faith, essentially, because I agree that outside of me and my preferences or my beliefs, there is such a thing as subjective truth. There is a God or there isn't a God. Jesus was the son of that God or he was not. Jesus performed his miracles or he didn't. He rose from the dead or he didn't. I'm not suggesting that we can't know anything, quite the opposite. But I don't know how you would go about demonstrating outside of faith that the feeding of the 5,000, for example, happened as it does in the account. So how, how would I do that, as opposed to, say, just the existence of God per se? I think you're right that when it comes to that particular claim, right, the particular claims on the person of Jesus— that that is a matter of faith, right? And so that that would become necessarily theological, not philosophical questions. And so it is going to require a different way of approaching the question. That uh, example you gave, by the way, I had to laugh at it because around that time, you said you were five years old when that happened or thereabouts. Yeah. So it was very much a very trendy thing among kind of liberationist theologians to preach about that miracle in the Gospels for exactly the way you would interpret it, right? That it wasn't actually... Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it was just that Jesus' preaching, the miracle was Jesus' preaching was so powerful it made the the, the greedy people with food share. Uh, so <laughs> kudos to your teacher for not uh, not indulging that, that interpretation. But I think that those claims that you're talking about do require an ascent of faith. Because obviously, for a wide variety of reasons, we're 2,000 years removed from the reported events. Right. And so... We have no experiential knowledge of it whatsoever. And so we're going to have to make decisions about the reliability of text. We're going to have to make decisions about the way this claim might match up with other claims that are in the scriptural canon. So those are all going to have to be worked through, I think, in a question of theology, which then is really going to incorporate faith, if I think it's done correctly. That's not to say they aren't rigorous. That's not to say there isn't a method to them. It's not a blind faith, but it is a question of faith. You're right about that. All right, that's the ad gong. I'm going to get back to my conversation with Father Nathaniel Myers in a moment. But before I do that, I want to tell you about the Competitive Enterprise Institute's Breakout How the World Works podcast hosted by author and political commentator Kevin Williamson. If you're not already listening to that show, you should be. Each episode, Kevin sits down with notable guests for candid conversations about the jobs they've had and the role of work in the economy and our social lives. From flipping burgers and tending pigs on a farm to leading special ops missions in far corners of the globe, some of America's best thinkers discuss the jobs they've had that have informed their outlook on life and future careers. In a recent episode, Kevin sat down with Jonah Goldberg, both old friends of mine, colleagues at National Review, for a fascinating conversation about the ins and outs of Jonah's decades-long career in the media. 
So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you get your podcasts or visit cei.org forward slash how the world works. That's cei.org forward slash how the world works. Do you think that religious faith will wane? I'm not asking you if you think it's false. Of course you don't. But are you worried about secularization? And if you are, what do you think is causing it? Well, I'm going to take a little bit of a controversial answer and say I'm not worried about it. And not for the reasons that people might expect. I think secularization comes and goes. I mean, if we look at the history of the church, we've seen this, right? People complain about the way the world is now or the situation the church or Christianity faces right now. And I just keep asking the question, would you rather be alive during the French Revolution? I think the answer is no. It's not to me a cause of great concern because the church, if done well, is always going to be somewhat countercultural because the claims do run contrary. If we believe, you know, in the question about just the practical aspects of faith and religion, that we have a fallen world and therefore our humanity is broken, then something that's trying to work against that is going to have a mighty steep climb, whether it's through secularization or there's going to be through corrupt clericalism or whatever it might be. We're going to keep fighting this our entire lives. So it's, to me, not a new story and it won't ever go away. And so that's not something that I spend a lot of time worrying about myself. Obviously, you need to be attentive to it on some level from a, you know, from a practical perspective about how do you preach the gospel or how do you try to guard people that you're is a priest entrusted with from error, but I don't see a need for it to be of any more particular concern than many of the other things that go on in the history of the the world. Let me ask you this, because we talked at the beginning about the existence of God, and we did so in a way that did not bolt on to it religion. If you have person A who believes that there is a God, and person B who believes that there is no God, affirmatively believes that there is no God. How do you think that affects the way that those people will see the world and live their life? Again, irrespective of any separate religious beliefs or doctrines. I ask this because I said to you, well, I don't think it really matters. I'm not able to determine who's right, but that until we get to all of the rest of it, I'm not that bothered either way. But you do think it matters. I wonder how you think that manifests in person A and person B. Well, in the abstract, of course, I mean, the truth is that it could manifest in a multitude of ways. So there's not any one way, I think, for either person A or person B that this would approach. Uh, You know, I can say, guaranteed they will do X. But I do think it will still matter. And the first thing I'd like to highlight there is the fact that you made a point about person B being affirmatively an atheist, right? And I think that's important to recognize. Atheism, if it's really embraced, is an actual affirming of some worldview. It's not just a negating of the existence of God. And sometimes I think people make that mistake. Atheism is going to have its own assumptions, its own way in which it tries to remedy lots of the issues and questions of the world. If a person's truly embracing an atheistic worldview. I do think that ultimately atheism, if it's adopted 
on a cultural level is going to produce what we've seen happen in atheistic societies when we look at the Soviet Union or we look at China. I mean, I think you're going to see that it's going to have a very dehumanizing effect because if we are made by God and God is real, removing ourselves from God is going to create something that wounds us, right? And is kind of contrary to our nature. So I do think that there's going to be ultimately effect on a societal level and individual level, how it will matter, I think is going to be very much determined because as I think I referenced earlier, person A who says, I believe in God could still practically live his or her life as though God does not exist, which is of course a great scandal, right? If a person takes it seriously and really tries to incorporate it, I think that it will lead them to have a certain kind of selflessness and an eye towards things on a, a grander scale than perhaps the person who is the more avid atheist would be. But does that assume that God likes us? Obviously, in Christianity, God loves us. But you could have a God, could you not, who created the universe, but was indifferent to human beings. Now, you can't have a Christian God of that nature. But you could have a God who created leopards and also created me and doesn't care if the leopard eats me or I eat the leopard. I think you're right. You could have that God. The question would then be, if we've settled in that we think God exists, then the question would be, why did God create the universe? Do we create things just to not care about them? I mean, if if we think about it, let's. this is, a, of course, just analogy here, but uh, from our human perspective, if we create something, you know, we tend to actually care for the thing we're creating. You know, we might not be perfectly happy with it. We might be upset that something didn't work out. And we're, of course, doing this as very clearly, I don't think this is a controversial claim, you know, imperfect creatures. If the claim of God as a perfect being is true, then it would seem to only logically follow that he does care for his creation. Now, what that care involves, how it entails, those are particular questions that I think it's settled and worked out through theology. But nonetheless, I do think you could take as a safe assumption that there would be a God in that case that cares. And therefore, the person who believes in that God is more likely to value creation than those who think we're an entirely indifferent material universe. All things being equal, yes. I mean, I think the obviously the the challenge will be if if we are sinful, that sin can distort anything and everything, right? And so, I mean, uh, uh, certainly you'll have plenty of people who, with great sincerity, have believed in God and have made colossal miscalculations about what that might entail. So, I mean, I, I want to be humble enough to admit that, right? Yeah, of course. But I do think that if a person is living, by and large, a good life in accord with what the faith they profess you would see those kinds of consequences come out, yes. Yeah, and I must say, one of the philosophical parts of Christianity that I've always liked the most is the flat-out acknowledgement of that, that many people will be in rebellion against God, but it doesn't per se make you good. <laughs> you have to work at it. So how did you become a priest? Were you raised Catholic? Was it a, a straight shot, or do you have an unusual path? Well, I wouldn't say that it was a particularly unusual 
path, but it also was not one that anybody would have ever expected. I was raised Catholic, so born in 1982, one older sister. My parents did enroll us in parochial school. I was also in public school for different times as well as we moved. It was actually when I went to the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul here in Minnesota, I was actually going there with the full intention of eventually pursuing a career in filmmaking. That was what I really wanted to do was after I'd completed my undergraduate work to enroll in graduate school for film. But while I was there, they required us to take philosophy courses just as a part of the core curriculum. I went into that first philosophy class assuming it was just going to be you know, the stereotypical stoner hippie professor asking if the chairs you're sitting on exist. But it wasn't that. It was something quite different. And I found that that actually is what really tickled my bone intellectually. And so I pursued a philosophy major. And through that course of being in philosophy, wound up interacting with a lot of seminarians. Because at our university, there's a college seminary. And just being in classes with them as they were required to take philosophy, it made me start thinking about the possibility of becoming a priest. It wasn't something that I had ever really considered carefully or even in the most remote of ways when I was younger. So I wound up actually, after I graduated from university in 2005, taking a year off, working and then considering what I wanted to do, whether to go on for graduate work in philosophy, film, or the seminary. And during the course of that year, made the choice to enter into the seminary. That would then lead to four more years of theological studies before being ordained in 2010. And you've been a priest ever since. That's right, for 14, almost 14 years now. What's your favorite part about being a priest? You know, this is a bit of a cliched answer, but it really is the truth. It's it's being able to say mass uh, and being able to hear confessions. As a parish priest, there's a lot that I do. You're basically running a, a small business in terms of how you know you're dealing with finances, staff, HR, all those different things, you know, making sure the snow gets plowed and that the heat runs and the air condition works, right? But all those things are things that many other people can do. And indeed, we have a great staff here that does many of those things. But being a priest, the only person in this parish that can say mass is me. The only person that can hear confessions is me. And so those are the parts where it really truly is the work of the priest. And I think it's the fact that that aspect of my life is clearly what I was sent to do. If you take those parts, there's no reason I'd be here. Uh, and so that's the two things I enjoy the most. Is that nerve-wracking when you first do it, given that you're the only person? Well, thankfully, usually when you're first ordained, you're going to be sent to a, a bigger parish where there's going to be at least one other priest. And so you would go in with a little bit of a mentor there uh, to help you out. So I had four years in that. I had two assignments before becoming the pastor here at St. Francis Xavier. So I had an opportunity to learn and to be with other priests during those years. But there is something nerve-wracking about it, particularly when it comes to confessions. We do sort of a, a training practicum where you you know they kind of test you to see how well do you understand the the words of the sacrament, the, you're being reviewed and, and analyzed by professors as well as by your classmates, and uh, then kind of how well do you handle approaching these questions. But those are obviously all simulations. Once it's real, it is very nerve-wracking. And I can, I can say, I think, with great confidence, most priests, when they're first hearing confessions, are broken down to tears. Uh, and I certainly was myself, because it's just so overwhelming to hear a wider range of people coming to you, bringing their life, things they would never say to anybody else, 
and just dumping on you and saying help. And it's, it's, it's a lot to take in. So it is nerve wracking, but as in all things, the more you do it, the more you learn, the more you grow, the more you're able to adjust to it. And in my case, I firmly believe God is there helping too. Let me finish by asking you this, and I understand I'm putting you on the spot here because this conversation wasn't planned out at all. We agreed to do it, but we, we made no notes. We had no meetings about this. The best way to do it. Yeah, I think so too. And I wanted it that way because I, I didn't want a debate. And as I say, I'm not in any way hostile towards religion. I If I became Catholic tomorrow, that'd be fine. I'm just not. But what what should... I read. If you were to recommend to me or anyone listening who is either not religious at all who, or who doesn't believe in God, say five things to read or areas to look in, what would they be? Well, it's a big question because obviously part of how I'd want to answer that would be predicated on the individual, him or herself, right? I think yeah, okay. um, you know, some people would find one thing particularly valuable and another. Speaking specifically to you, having sure. this is quite obviously presumptuous on my part since we've never actually spoken to each other before, but having read you and heard you on different podcasts, I would definitely encourage St. Augustine's City of God for a couple of reasons. The first being that there's just a brilliance in his own writing and his, his own mastery of rhetoric. So I think you would appreciate it purely on just a, an actual level of reading it, but also the fact that he's dealing with questions of the political as well as of the theological at the same time, and balances them quite nicely. And I think there's a lot that he was dealing with culturally and historically at that moment that is still relevant to us today. So that would be, I think, a a must-read right there. I would recommend, it's just a brief article, but it's called A Contemporary Cosmological Argument for the Existence of God by a mid-20th century philosopher named Richard Taylor. That's a, a really well-articulated piece of writing. It's not very long, but I think that would be a really worthwhile thing. Um, and then I would also posit for people, uh, I think that really anything written by Pope Benedict or before he's Pope, Cardinal Ratzinger, is very succinct and linear. So you'd find a lot of work, a lot of worth in his works as well. And lastly, I really think that there is still a staying power in simply really reading the letters of St. Paul, because they're historical documents, of course, they give you a picture of of what's going on, but there's a witness in his own arguments there that has a force to it. So I think those would be the, if I was going to highlight a part of the scriptures to read, I would actually highlight the letters of St. Paul. All right, well, I'm going to write those down. I'll also put them in the show notes. And it has been a pleasure talking to you, Father Nathaniel Myers. Well, it's been a pleasure for me. Uh, Before we began, I had mentioned to some friends that we were going to be doing this, and one of them is also a big fan of yours, and he said, this is our opportunity to become friends with Charlie Cook. Don't blow it. (laughs) 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 Well, you didn't. Well, that's good to hear.